Okay, so we'll get started. Good morning, everyone. I'm Peter Gettler. It's my honor and privilege to be the president of the Cato Institute. Today, we're honored to welcome to Cato Ambassador Philippe Etienne, the diplomatic representative of the French Republic to the United States. France is not just America's oldest ally, but America and France are deeply intertwined in the history of freedom and the values that Cato's work strives to defend. Here in Washington, of course, the signs of friendship with France are everywhere, in names such as Lafayette, Rochambeau, and L'Enfant. But our ties go deeper than that. On an intellectual and an even spiritual level, we know that neither country would enjoy the liberties we have today without the other. The framers of the American Constitution drew from French ideas. Our prized system of checks and balances comes straight from Montesquieu. The thinker cited more than any other in the debates at our Constitutional Convention. Freedom of religion and separation of church and state owe an immense debt of gratitude to the piercing wit and deep insights of Voltaire. To a large degree, the spirit of the, the Enlightenment born in France found a home in America. On the other side of the Atlantic, Thomas Jefferson was fond of boasting that the French Constitution was drawn up in my parlor. That, of course, is a bit of an exaggeration, but it's true that the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen was drafted with Jefferson's active participation and influence. There's a direct line from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to, and here's where my already weak French accent always fails me, there's a direct line from life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to liberté, égalité, fraternité. Both uh, our nations and the world are better for this connection. The bond between France and the United States continued from the American founding through the ensuing centuries. As libertarians here at Cato, one of our fondest symbols stands in New York Harbor as a gift from France, a testament to our shared passion for liberty. In the 20th century, Americans did not forget that our independence was forged hand in hand with France. As France's soldiers once came here to help liberate America, American soldiers by the millions crossed the ocean to fight alongside you in two world wars. On the beaches of Normandy, Americans laid down their lives to overthrow the most evil regime our world has ever known as we joined with you to liberate France as France once liberated America. Together, we laid the groundwork for today's Europe, free and peaceful, as testified to by Ambassador Etienne's previous assignment representing his country in Berlin. Old enmities have been overcome, and together the West held the line against another totalitarian enemy, enemy of freedom until the ultimate collapse of communist tyranny. Our friendship, of course, has not been without its disagreements, as we've seen as recently as this year. Our two nations both value our independence, and our alliance is one of equals, with all that entails. But at the end of the day, we know that we stand together and that we will continue to do so against this century's challenges to our shared heritage of freedom. And that's why we're here today, as we continue the open dialogue about how best to face today's threats. I look forward to the discussion. And with that, I'll say again, Ambassador, we're honored and thankful to have you here at Cato. I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Justin Logan, to uh, set the stage for today's event. Justin? Great. Thank you very much, Peter, for those remarks.
very eloquent opening there. I'm not sure I'll be able to, to follow adequately. My name is Justin Logan. I'm a senior fellow uh, here at Cato. Um, and it's my great pleasure to introduce the topic that we have before us today, the meaning of European defense. Um, it's important to note, I think, at the outset that Cato scholars have been advocating for greater European security cooperation for decades. And one of the largest impediments to that cooperation, it's important to note, has been the American government, the American leadership. In 1998, Secretary of State Madeleine Albright uh, declared that if European security cooperation were to duplicate, diminish, or discriminate against NATO capabilities, the so-called 3Ds, the United States would view that cooperation as a problem, not a benefit. Um, when European security cooperation efforts again wound up in the early 2000s, the US ambassador to NATO was dispatched to say that if this cooperation didn't have the United States at its core, it would pose, quote, one of the greatest dangers to the transatlantic relationship. Not to NATO, mind you, but to the transatlantic relationship. And Cato scholars thought that this was a short-sighted view. And I think now, amid a fundamental shift uh, in the Asian security environment and continuing challenges in Europe, uh, Europeans, and France in particular, have begun the hard work of increasing cooperation on security. So it's in that context, again, amid these challenges in Europe and the shifting balance of power globally, that we're so pleased to have Ambassador Philippe Etienne here uh, at the Cato Institute. Ambassador Etienne, as has been mentioned, is the Ambassador of France to the United States. He previously held a number of posts within the Ministry for Europe and Foreign Affairs, notably including the Ambassador of France to Romania, the Director of the Cabinet of the Minister of Foreign and European Affairs, the permanent representative of France to the EU, the ambassador of France to Germany, and most recently is the diplomatic advisor to the president of France from 2017 to 2019. Ambassador Etienne is an expert on the European Union and on continental Europe. He's held posts in Moscow, Belgrade, Bucharest, Bonn, Berlin, and Brussels. Those are all the B cities that I can name. Um, he has also served as an advisor in the cabinet of the Minister of Foreign Affairs on several occasions a graduate of the École Normale Supérieure and the École Nationale d'Administration. Uh, Ambassador Etienne has also holds a teaching diploma in mathematics, I think a notable credential for a diplomat, um, has a degree in economics, and is a graduate of the National Institute for Oriental Languages and Civilizations. He speaks English, English, German, Spanish, Russian, and Romanian, in addition to French, and is an officer of the Légion d'Honneur and a commander of the National Order of Merit, Again, it is my great pleasure to welcome to the podium Ambassador Philippe Etienne. Welcome, Ambassador. Thank you. Thank you. Uh -huh. Well, thank you very much for this presentation. No, you have said I speak English. I have to <laughs> deliver. <laughs> but uh, I am uh, mostly honored to be, to be with you today. I don't think the French ambassadors come so often to Cato's Institute, so it's a, it's a great privilege for me, and I want to, to thank Cato Institute for this uh, invitation, but also because um, you have chosen a, a subject which is politically very important for us. I would like to speak to you today about European defense and maybe more broadly about what we call European sovereignty. Uh, I could have said strategic autonomy, but I just believe it is crucial not to reduce the debate to a discussion over semantics, as has been done all too often in the past, and I, I will try at least to, to speak about the substance. I, 
I, I first want to, want with, the, the, with this intention to speak about substance, I first uh, want to explain what we mean uh, when we speak about European sovereignty. Sovereignty goes on hand in one hand with, uh, with power, of course. One only enjoys sovereignty when one agrees to exercise one's power, as you know well in, in the United States. For us Europeans, this was no longer so obvious after 1945, after the trauma of the two world wars you, you reminded us of. That is what we must always keep in mind in seeking to understand the choices made by Europe's founding fathers. I, I want to mention in this regard uh, the most um, important um, decision or declaration uh, at the beginning of the European project, the Schumann Declaration of May 9, 1950. That seminal text introduced the utterly unprecedented goal of pooling coal and steel production, pooling sovereignties already. And to, and here I quote what the then foreign minister of France declared, change the destinies of those regions which have long been devoted to the manufacture of munitions of war of which they have been the most constant victims. These ideas had been, I don't know whether we are aware of, that has been, by the way, invented, at least to a certain extent, in Washington, uh, by a man called Jean Monnet, who lived and worked here in Washington at the beginning of the 1940s. He played an important role between the United States and. Uh, uh, the United Kingdom and before France, of course. Um, and uh, he's, he developed, he matured these ideas uh, during walks in uh, Rock Creek Park because he lived uh, on Foxhall Road. So 80 years ago, these ideas start, started being developed here in Washington. And indeed, our nations then joined together to chart an entirely new course, a path of cooperation, a path of law, and first of all, a path of reconciliation between France and Germany after three wars, including two world wars, who had opposed, which had opposed the French and the German. In the early 1990s, when Europe had finally reunified after decades of division, and it seemed like the dawn of a new era that some even conceived at the end of history. Such a model could appear sustainable over time, but the violence of history soon reasserted itself to those of us who had imagined we could pursue our destiny sheltered from the world and its clashes in a sort of a withdrawal or European retreat. While Europe and the whole world believed it could we could escape from history, history caught up with us, and especially on the European continent, with the wars of the former Yugoslavia, the shock of jihadist terrorism, and a new phase of instability in the Middle East, but also, more globally, with the aggressive emergence of China and the destabilizing behavior of Russia. In short, the return of power games, 
in a world that is once again becoming hard, becoming brutal, and also with crisis, humanitarian crisis, migration crisis, and also with increasingly explicit challenges to the principles and values our democracies are based on, and challenges also to the multilateral order, to the rule of law. In this new configuration, we Europeans find ourselves in a paradoxical situation. While we shy away from acknowledging it, we already possess the attributes of power. We are the first economic market in the world. We are the first donor of public aid. We are at the initiative in the fight against global warming. We were the first to give ourselves the tools to protect the dig digital data of our citizens. We are a regulatory power as European Union. And finally, and perhaps above all, Europe is synonymous, like the United States, with the power of democracy and therefore of choices that are legitimate because they are collective. So today, as our president stated, Europe has to assert itself as a power, and this requires boosting our defense policy, although it is not limited to that aspect. In the field of defense, we as European Union have already made considerable progress, exemplified by, in the last four years, exemplified by the new European Defense Fund, about 10 billion dollars on seven years. It's a completely new instrument, didn't exist at all in the European budget so far. But also the European Intervention Initiative launched by my country, a number of what we call structured cooperations, for instance, to develop new technologies in for or new, new instruments, rather, uh, in the fields of helicopters or ships. A military mobility initiative launched at the level of the EU, which is, I think, very much valued by the US and NATO. And several joint Franco-German programs that were subsequently opened to other member states in the area of armaments dedicated to our, our air force or to our land army. On the basis of these initiatives taken over the past four years, we must now enter a more operational phase where we Europeans, based on our common interests, define shared strategies and actions to face this world fraught with risks and challenges. The French presidency of the European Union, which will start on January 1st, will hopefully lead to the adoption of what we call our strategic compass in March 2022, the launch of this, the preparation of this document, a kind of a security and defense white paper, was under the German presidency uh, one and a half years ago. A document that will assess current threats, define our collective choices and ambitions, which will define our strategy. The purpose of this exercise is first to embrace a true definition of what we want to see as European strategic sovereignty. Then 
We will define and carry a common analysis of these threats, carry new ambitions regarding our defense industry, engage in joint exercises, define our joint partnerships, and ultimately define our common organizations in the new areas of conflict, such as maritime space, outer space, and cyber. Both our security, our sovereignty in Europe are at stake, but so is the future of the Atlantic Alliance. And we would be mistaken in seeing this as a paradox, for we knew even before the AUKUS crisis that the future of our alliance depended on rebalancing the ties between the United States and Europe on a better burden sharing in the financial contributions and beyond that. During the last NATO summit on June 14th, we decided to launch a review of the Alliance's strategic concept. This issue will be at the heart of the discussions we will have in the coming months, looking to our next summit that will be held in Madrid in, in June 2022. But let me emphasize here one key point. None of this calls, of course, into question NATO, or in particular NATO's Article 5, which remain as strong and important as ever today, after, and we must remember this, having enabled the Europeans to develop their own European project to, since the 1950s, knowing we could count on our American ally. France has said it many times before, defense, European defense and NATO are complementary and support each other more than ever, as clearly mentioned in the Rome Declaration adopted on October 29th by our two presidents. And not only mentioned by detail with the different components capabilities, military operations, industrial and technological base, and a strategic partnership which must be strengthened between the European Union and NATO. A credible and sustainable NATO can only benefit from a lasting strengthening of European defense commitments. France, in this context, respects the security interests of all its European partners and allies. Our soldiers are fully engaged in NATO's deterrence and defense posture in the Baltic states and the Black Sea. We also welcome the participation of more and more EU member states and other Europeans as we highly value the American support in our anti-terrorist actions in Africa. For instance, through the development of a new special forces program called Takuba, made with the contributions of European special forces. I mentioned earlier the attributes of power and sovereignty that Europe enjoys already, and the need to live up to our actual power as well as to the principles and values that are at the heart of our European project. A true 
European foreign security and defense policy will go hand in hand with our so-called internal policies and they will reinforce each other. In the current context of the pandemic, I am also thinking of our health policies, which we must also harmonize. And as well as the US develops the concept or enlarge the concept of national security to those new domains, which are global health or climate and energy. Also, the European Union is, an, from this point of view, a more and more important security provider, considering these new dimensions of our strategy for our national security, for our transatlantic security. The European Union, with all these internal policies, is a very, and I would say, a key security provider in all those new domains. And I think it is important also to realize that um, and to take into account other, other, other external policies. I will give here the example of our trade policy. We, we have been uh, developing for the last two, three years, new instruments to be kind of less naive, to be, to take into account, for instance, hidden state subsidies, uh, to take into account the need of reciprocity when we deal with economies which are not market economies completely, or which use instruments which lead to unfair con competition conditions and which uh, prevent a level playing field. So this also is a contribution to our vision of our uh, sovereignty. Finally, as I said in my introduction, the choice of the words um, bit strategic autonomy, European sovereignty is not the most important, as long as we are clear on what they mean for us. I myself tend, and this is the reason why I use it, to prefer and to use the concept of European sovereignty, which our president, Emmanuel Macron, was the first to develop in his speech, in the speech he gave at the University La Sorbonne, has he presented his vision for the future of the European project in September 2017? And speaking about the meaning of this concept, there is one point I am sure of which is essential. A more sovereign Europe, a European Union, a partner, as partner of the United States, able to defend in its interests, values, its middle and working classes through more commitments, including financial commitments in it, to its defense, is good news for the United States, is good news for the security and the prosperity of the United States. Because we share most or most important interests in in a more and more complex and difficult world. And because we share the same values in a world where those values are more and more 
challenged. So this is my conclusion before our discussion. Thank you again for your invitation and thank you again very much indeed for explaining to you what we mean when we speak about those concepts because we must really go beyond the words and speak about what we want to do together in the future. Thank you very much. That's great. So we have an opportunity now for a brief while to uh, engage in a discussion, some sort of Q&A. Uh, both for those who are viewing online, you can submit questions directly on the website um, or using the hashtag CatoFP. Um, for those who are in the audience and have a question, um, go ahead, the normal uh, run of show, go ahead and raise your hand, wait for the microphone, uh, and please identify yourself um, when called on. I don't, so we have uh, some questions coming in online, but I wanted to, to start by this interesting um, term. I know we don't want to get caught up in semantics, but um, President Macron's remarks yesterday, of course, um, really did emphasize this idea of sort of sovereignty, European sovereignty, um, which is obviously uh, uh, a big idea. It's a big concept. And so um, in some sense, you can see these initiatives as almost building a state, building a European state. I don't think it's a, a, an enormous leap to get there. And so there are both top-down and bottom-up elements of state building, of creating shared purpose, shared identity, et cetera, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about how you see those two aspects of this project working together, both from top-down and bottom-up institutionally and at the more mass political level? Thank you very much. Indeed, the, the word is strong. First, as I said, at the very beginning of the European integration, we had a pooling of sovereignties. When France and Germany, together with Italy, the Netherlands, Luxembourg and Belgium, the six first countries, decided to pool their resources and policies in steel and coal, which represented the instruments of war, and wanted them to represent the instruments of peace and rebuilding peace and cooperation. It was a pooling of sovereignty already. Right. But now, what is really new is this, the world as it is today. And the fact that the European nations, which are and which remain sovereign nations, of course, because we have not a unified European state, of course, it's different. We remain sovereign nations. But we realize that to face those challenges of this world, be it security, but also migration, energy and climate, technological revolutions, we are not in a position to defend at best those interests if we play separately one from the other. Even Germany, Italy, France, Poland, Spain, to mention the five uh, biggest uh, countries in uh, the 27 EU member states, among the 27 EU member states, as, as are not in a position to, to do that on their own. And we recognize that. Although it is part of our internal democratic debate, there are 
in our countries, in France, for, for instance, there are a debate on this, of course. But what we say, what our president says is that, and what I think the German, the new German coalition partners in their coalition treaty say, and what we agree mostly upon in the EU today, is that we have to, to pull more sovereignty at the level of the EU. The best example, because it's, uh, it's really now, it hap it's happening now, is in health, healthcare policies. We, it, was, it was not, and it still is not, in terms of policy definition, a competence at the EU level. But we decided to go forward and beyond our treaties to do things together because obviously we needed to do it together, including to buy vaccines or to distribute vaccines to other countries outside the EU like the US is doing. We are more efficient if we do it together. So this is uh, an approach which might be a bit top-down, the example of vaccination and uh, the fight against COVID, because we had to react very quickly. And the European integration goes through crisis, develops at the moment of crisis, always. It has always been the case. But it is also a bottom-up approach, because it's the will of our governments to do so. And um, if you look at polls, if you poll the, 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 what the population thinks, Usually defense, by the way, is one of the domains where European citizens see the most obvious need to go, to go together. Because again, we are, each of us, we are simply not at the, up, to the, up to the task. And this is the reason why I concluded, I think it is, I think deeply it is in the, in the interest of the US to have a, a stronger European partner, to take its share of um, not only the financial, which is important, by the way, financial contributions, but also a, a, a bigger share of our economies and budget, but also a political will and uh, commitments to do things in our neighborhood, for instance. I wanted, before we go to the, to the audience here, um, to ask a question, if I may, about uh, sort of what we might call the elephant in the room, the sort of crisis that is on uh, uh, the periphery now of, of NATO uh, and of the EU. Um, so we obviously know today there is an effort to bring together um, the Russian Federation leadership along with some of the members of NATO to discuss the crisis in Ukraine. And that, I think, is, it raises this question of sort of unity of effort and unity of purpose. Um, some members, for reasons that are probably obvious, feel slighted that they were not included in, in the meeting. And, and, you know, so this has been something that is that the, the Biden administration, and I suspect the leadership of all of these countries has struggled with, is differing perspectives on threats. Um, can you talk a little bit about how the French view the effort to sort of bring together these perceptions, again, from people living in countries that are, have very different geographies, very different economies, very different histories, um, to share a sort of unity of purpose when it comes to questions like uh, the crisis in Ukraine? Well, inside the European Union, we have been having this discussion about our relations with Russia since uh, the annexation of Crimea, actually. And uh, uh, typically for the European Union, 
we started from different positions because our countries, from Portugal to Estonia, from Ireland to Bulgaria, of course, we are not at all neither in the same geographical position nor with the same historical uh, traditions, the same histories in our facing, facing Russia. And my experience, because at that time I was, I represented France in the European Union and I negotiated for my country's uh, sanctions, not only after Crimea, but also uh, after the, the military intervention in, in the Donbass. And the, uh, we, we have always succeeded to come to a unified EU position. And every six months, the leaders of the European Union discuss this, introduced by a joint report by the German Chancellor and the French President. Why? Because France and Germany lead the mediation in the so-called Normandy format on the Donbass crisis together with Ukraine and Russia. So we have had, we have been having, and we, we, last time I think it was in June, we have had this debate not only about uh, how to respond to, to these uh, aggressions, uh, Russian aggressions against Ukraine, but also in our relations with Russia altogether. Those are the same issues which we have today. And we had this after Skripal, uh, when the UK was still a member of the EU. Each time the, you find in the EU, like we, we see with President Biden's in, uh, uh, attitude in the last days or in, in NATO traditionally, the two elements. We must be absolutely firm on our principles, but also on our interests. But we have also the necessity of talking with the Russian leadership. So the, the, it is a combination of those two elements that we have seen uh, in the last days again, and uh, which must include, of course, uh, a consultation between uh, allies, uh, uh, and including, uh, of course, between members of NATO in particular because I mentioned my experience inside the EU, but here in the last days, it's, it's more, uh, it will be also the EU, but it, it, it is mostly about NATO. So we, we, are, we are discussing this in, in the two frameworks. And we, when, when, when President Biden met with President Putin, President Putin in Geneva uh, at the end of June, uh, after being, uh, we welcomed this, this uh, engagement, but we also said, as long as it is about the security of Europe, of course, it must be uh, discussed with the European allies. And we, we, we had this discussion even after AUKUS when we, re we opened with, uh, with uh, the United States a lot of strategic discussions, including on European defense, as I said. One element of this is uh, the principle of coordination with uh, European allies, especially on this uh, issue of uh, strategic stability, um, and uh, arms control uh, negotiations, we are, we Europeans are directly interested. It's are the security of our continent. So we must be consulted. Great, I think we can throw it open to the audience right now. My colleague James has a microphone, so please um, wait for it. Let's start in the back right there. 
Thank you very much. Um, Sebastian Sprenger with Defense News. I have a question about the new EU-US uh, uh, dialogue format that was announced last week. Um, Admiral Blejean said he was looking for some concrete results to come out of this rather than wishful thinking. From a French or European perspective, ideally, what would that be? Thank you. Uh, the new, the, the, the Biden-Harris administration has a, uh, opened, uh, together with the European Union, a number of important dialogues. Uh, the Trade and Technology Council was the first one among what had been decided at the summit in June in Brussels between the EU and the US to convene in Pittsburgh, but indeed, it was also decided for the first time, as you, uh, as you said, to open a dialogue on uh, security and defense. And I find that it is as such very important. By the way, the High Representative of the European Union on Foreign Police and Security was Mr. Borrell during his last visit to, to Washington. He had his meetings normally with uh, Secretary Blinken, but he, was, he had also meetings I think it, is, it was probably the first time in the Pentagon. And the, the, the fact to, to start, as it has been announced uh, last week, uh, this new, as it been confirmed last week, a new uh, dialogue between the US and the EU as such on security in defense is really important because it means uh, that the US recognizes the EU as an important partner on these issues. And I think it is, a, it is a, a right thing to do because, as I explained in my introduction, the EU will be more and more an important partner and a strategic partner of NATO, but also of the US as, 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 as a country. Also because we have a lot of instruments uh, which are not only although there will be also this more and more developed European defense policy, which are in many, many other policies. So we have plenty of things to discuss. You ask uh, what it will be concretely not to remain uh, a wishful thinking. Uh, well, it has not yet started. So, uh, But among the, the issues I have mentioned in my introductions, I think there are plenty of things on top of the of what the the, the actuality will bring. Of course, uh, I, there are plenty of things to to discuss. Um, one thing we discussed bilaterally with the with the U.S., which will be also mentioned during a a, a negotiation which will take place be, between the European Defense Agency and the U.S is, for instance, uh, the, the question of how we, we can better cooperate and uh, simplify the process in the, in the fields of military equipment. There are plenty of things which, which we can discuss uh, in, uh, and it will be also for the United States a good way to, 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 to have a more direct access and information about what we want to develop inside the EU. So I am not uh, worried about uh, the, the agendas. Plenty of things to discuss. There was another question. Right, let's go right down to the front, please. Okay. 
I will speak louder. Hi. Um, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, Augusta Salzana, Filipino by birth, American by choice. Uh, I'm a friend of uh, uh, French Air Force General, uh, Major General now, Vincent Cousin, one of my friends. Yes, yeah, the former defense, yeah, yeah. And we, we have our defense attaché. Yes. General uh, Carsi here. He's, from our, I, he's yes. from our Air Force. Right, he and I had communicated before, but I think the Russians might have hacked in. But anyway, <laughs> oh, no, no. Um, my basic question is this, and um, um, I uh, basically is this, uh, what is your personal opinion of uh, George Soros, and I guess the, uh, and your uh, feel for the French people in general, you're just regular French people concerning the, you know, that sort of uh, wanting to be part of the globalist community in that sense and where there's a c conflict with the, with the, Ameri with the Americans, uh, you know, the history of, of America. Let's get another one, James, also if we can. We'll take two at a time. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Um, my name is Stephen Keat. Uh, I'm a retired US diplomat. And uh, I take well your points about how European countries cooperating to get together can do more than on their own. But also in a brute way, because I'm also an ex-economist, or I guess I could still be considered an economist, even if no one's paying me for it. Um, you know, I was looking at the Eurostat uh, statistics on European defense expenditures. And the ones they had up were for 2019, and they showed uh, total, uh, well, averaging out for the EU as 1.2%. Now, some countries like France uh, were considerably more than that. Uh, some countries like Italy and Germany uh, were considerably less. And these are, of course, fairly major countries. Now, I don't expect you to call out your fellow members of the EU. You're a good diplomat. But uh, I'd be interested in if you could comment on the political will in Europe to increase defense expenditures, since that will obviously be a necessary thing to do if Europe wants to play a major role. Thank you. Um, of course, we, we, we appreciate the, the work with uh, George Soros on Open Societies. Uh, I am not here to express personal opinions, but uh, I, I, we value very much the, the, the work uh, they are doing. Uh, in the, uh, and um, you mentioned history of America. I'm not sure I understood the... Was it another question or...? Well, as you but I'm thinking of like in terms of where um, sort of the sort of the alternative to the world view of George Soros. Uh, I guess I'm sort of indirectly addressing nationalism and uh, just you know our you know as we move from the American century to the Asian century, uh, where I think that we we are here in 
um, where we. No, 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 no. But I, 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 it is not uh, difficult for me to to repeat that. I deeply feel we share. Not only we share core values of human rights and democracy, as uh, your president recalled, it's, uh, he was very eloquent with mentioning Montesquieu, uh, Thomas Jefferson. It is not only our history, it's still today. And actually, we don't share only those values and those uh, um, principles which found our democracies. But we, we share also, frankly, the challenges to that. And uh, so it's not only a kind of a theoretical uh, messaging about our values and principles. It's also the life and the reality of our societies. Um, so, of course, there are the obvious um, manifestations of those challenges which we have had at the beginning of this year in the United States, but also we had in France, and obviously. But I will quote something which is maybe more remote, or appears to be more remote from these challenges to our democracies, which is the, uh, the question of the regulation of uh, internet and the, the in relation with the, the biggest tech platforms. The debates you have in, the, in your Congress here are the same as the debates we have to, in our societies, in our parliaments. Internet at the beginning was a symbol, and not only a symbol, an incredibly powerful instrument for freedom, for the liberty of uh, expressing everybody's ideas. And, and we have seen through the years the, the way Internet is developing has posed these questions, how to moderate, for instance, extremist, uh, violent terrorist contents. This is something we have in our societies. So I, I really feel that this heritage, this common heritage we have is very important today to found also convergences and common actions to defend our core values and our democracies. I don't know whether I, I gave you the, so the answer you, 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 you expected, but uh, it's, it's really important for us. And I think we have plenty of things to do together. Uh, yes, of course. Uh, uh, I'm not here to criticize. <laughs> but uh, we are clearly, and frankly, I was ambassador in Germany. And I think it is also well understood in a country like Germany. We have to, to step up, and I think that Germany is doing that. Others, I'm sure, too. That we all took this uh, commitment uh, in, uh, in NATO. By the way, it is not only a, the 2% commitment. There is also, as you know, a 20% commitment uh, about the composition of our defense uh, policies. But there is also, beyond that, the will, beyond the money, there is a will to, to engage uh, and to take oh, even actions, if necessary. And together with Germany, with uh, many other European countries, we, we, have, we have been doing this. Uh, France is, of course, not a more, more than part, but is, was the, 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 the initiator of these actions in, in Africa, in Sahel, 
on the side of the Sahelian governments to fight against terrorism. But in the Gulf, we have uh, started operations, marit a maritime operation. We, we have, we have to, to do more for, for of this. Uh, and um, I agree with you, we, we must step up, continue to step up financially and politically and militarily, our efforts. So I think we have time for maybe one more round. James, if you could go uh, both of these aisles right over here and we'll take both of those. For centuries, uh, Europeans, mainly British and France, and later on US, have been involved in uh, uh, colonialism and slavery for a long time. That still is somehow it's going on, uh, including in Caribbeans, Africa, South America, uh, even it was uh, part of East Asia. Uh, the point is that we're talking about new European uh, Union. What is, is any plan to prevent this from happening in the future? And what is it that uh, uh, to, repre to compensate and uh, uh, somehow apologize or uh, uh, confess that what, what has been going on in the past. James, go back here. Yes, my name is uh, Richard Fien, and I had worked uh, for the late Elie Wiesel, Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate, who used to send me to the French embassy all the time uh, for various documents and treaties and memos of understanding. And I hear you speak Romanian, so there we go. My question deals with France's nuclear deterrent. Combined with the United Kingdom, that's about 400 serviceable nuclear weapons, along with a fleet of submarines combined, to pack quite a punch to deliver that. Going forward, President uh, Macron talked about strengthening Europe's defense capabilities. I don't mean to put you particularly on the spot, but going forward, clearly that nuclear umbrella is very important. What is the future, do you see, of that? relationship with the United Kingdom? So, uh, yes, we share this uh, with um, the United States and with the United Kingdom and with other countries in Europe. And um, uh, we, on, on, the, on the history of slavery and, sla and, and slave trade, we have taken actions in, in France. We, uh, I, I think in particular of the Taubira legislation. Uh, but beyond that, we, we have to rethink permanently and completely our relations with the countries ha which have uh, uh, been our colonies. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why our president has initiated a new policy with Africa, which is based on the idea 
that beyond words, but first in words, but also in acts, we must develop an equal partnership between Africa and Europe. And this partnership will be credible, or will be, of course, more credible if we don't ignore the past. And one example of this is the decision taken by our country to initiate a policy of restitution of art and cultural items which had been looted by French or other um, people during the colonial times. So it's a, it's, a, it's a really symbolic but also important process and the French parliament has voted the first legislations and we have uh, restituted to Benin uh, a first set of objects called the treasure of Behanzin. Behanzin was a king of a kingdom in the country of Benin, uh, around Abome. We have given the, this uh, collection back to, to Benin, but it's only the start, it's a new policy, it's one example. But beyond that, and looking to the future, this uh, idea of an equal partnership has also a very concrete signification. We can build uh, what we want in terms of multilateral answers to the common challenges, be it uh, security, climate, global health, only by working together um, and by um, changing the paradigm of our policies with those countries. which means more um, financial cooperation, but also another way of considering this financial cooperation. I could quote, I could, I could mention a lot of examples. In the G20, the country which has taken the lead for an initiative in the, in the context of the pandemic to um, alleviate the weight of the debt on developing nations, most of them are in Africa, or the majority, or large majority in Africa, is France. And it was important because in the G20 you have new actors who own more and more from the African debt, especially China. And during the EU uh, the European presidency by France, the one important partnership which will be highlighted will be the relation between Europe and Africa. And we will have a European Union, African Union summit in February. We, are, we have been preparing it already for months. We have met, the leaders have met on the margins of uh, the G20 summit in Rome. And we are working on this new deal 
between Europe and Africa very, very actively. But again, it's only a set of examples, and I don't deny the fact, and this, this is the reason why I mentioned this example about restitutions. I don't deny the, the link between the past and the future, of course. We cannot ignore this. But we build also very strong policies for the future. Indeed, I just said I speak Romanian, in Romanian. Do you speak Romanian? <laughs> no, but uh, no, but you mentioned Elie Wiesel, and I thank you for that. Thank you very much. Um, you mentioned in your question two essential. I, I see two essential questions in in your question. The uh, the the role of, but maybe I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. The role of uh, nuclear deterrence and the relations with the United Kingdom. Um, we, we, uh, we have recently commemorated, first, nuclear deterrence for France remains essential. And we don't want, through uh, evolutions in our doctrines, to give the wrong signals in this respect. Our president, like his predecessors, has made, a, his, has made public his vision of nuclear deterrence in the global context of our defense policies in a speech he made at Paris, Ecole Militaire. It was uh, two years, one and a half years ago, two, year, two years ago, I think. So it remains an essential part also for our uh, common defense strategies in NATO, clear. And it is, in this respect, indeed, you have uh, two countries with big arsenals which are Russia and uh, the United States. You have one country, China, which develops very rapidly its capabilities. But, but you have also the UK and France, who have much smaller but essential uh, capabilities. And we, we, uh, we with the UK, we, um, we share many things. This is one of the elements. This is the reason why we regretted Brexit. This is the reason why also we um, had uh, a, um, the European Union proposed to the UK in the context of Brexit, uh, EU-UK security defense uh, treaty, which the UK refused to negotiate. So we, we, we negotiated the other aspects of Brexit, of the future relations, I mean. But of course, we still have a very important relation with the United Kingdom. We have celebrated uh, we, have, we have celebrated recently the 10th anniversary of the Lancaster House bilateral treaty, which is a defense and security treaty between the United Kingdom and, and France. And of course, we, the two of us are permanent members of the UNSC. We are in NATO together, so we, we still have a, a, a strong cooperation and we want to keep that, even if we uh, have some uh, difficulties in our bilateral relations now, but also more than in our bilateral relations. What, what is happening right now is not related really to the bilateral, I think, but mostly to the 
post-Brexit EU-UK relations and the implementation of the treaties we have uh, signed, uh, especially the Northern Ireland Protocol and the fisheries issues. But we, we, we want, and I'm I sure, sure it is a shared it is shared in both countries. We want to keep this very strong uh, partnership, of course. Well, with that, let me uh, encourage everyone to thank Ambassador Etienne for joining us today for a great discussion. Thank you very much, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you. And we have a panel which is following right now. So stay, stay where you are. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you for your uh, hospitality. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Very and thank you for the great questions. Richard, if you'd like to come up. And I'll now introduce our panelists. All right. Great. OK. So we have presentations to follow from two scholars of the transatlantic relationship and security issues. Rachel, I didn't ask you. Are you all right to go first? Oh. I thought you said that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I am fine to go first. Perfect. Rachel, standing back there, you will, but not right. yet. Right. Um, As awesome. a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Europe Center, her research focuses on European security, NATO, and the transatlantic relationship, as promised. Prior to joining the Atlantic Council, Rizzo served as the director of programs at the Truman Center uh, for National Policy and the Truman National Security Project, where she managed a team of senior fellows and oversaw all Truman-branded publications, programming, and policy initiatives. Her writing has appeared in publications such as Politico, Foreign Policy, Defense One, The National Interest, and War on the Rocks. She's a frequent commentator on European security. I heard you on NPR this week, last week, something yeah, like that. Um, and has provided analysis for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, among others. She received her MA in Security Policy Studies from GW's Elliott School, where she focused on defense analysis and homeland security policy. And following Rachel will be Josh Schifferson, who's Associate Professor of International Relations at Boston University's Frederick S. Pardee School of Global Studies. Uh, his teaching and research interests focus on the intersection of international security and diplomatic history, particularly the rise and fall of great powers and the origins of grand strategy. He has special expertise in great power politics since 1945 and US engagement in Europe and Asia, again, pertinent for our purposes today. Schifferson earned a BA from Brandeis and a PhD from MIT. Uh, and his areas of expertise, again, international security and particularly uh, Western Europe and the US relationship in NATO. His work has appeared in International Security, Journal of Strategic Studies, Foreign Affairs, and other venues. Um, so with that, I'll turn over the podium to Rachel Rizzo. so much, Justin. It's really nice to be here, and it's great to, um, I think this is my first panel ever speaking at the Cato Institute, so, so thanks so much for hosting me. Um, this has been really interesting so far, um, so I think I'm going to try to follow the ambassador's remarks as, as best I can and focus mostly on talking about um, strategic autonomy, strategic, so uh, strategic sovereignty. Uh, I think the conversation in D.C. regarding this issue has really gone in circles for decades, um, whether we're talking about autonomy or sovereignty, because there's no agreed upon definition of what that term actually means, and because it means so many things to so many different people, the conversations never really seem to result in any substantive conclusions. Um, 
So basically that means that the United States and Europe have been playing um, rhetorical ping pong for the last three decades, I would say. Um, the United States says Europe doesn't do enough in terms of its own defense capabilities. Europe then tries to answer the call and then immediately gets pushback from the United States where we say, whoa, 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 don't do it that way. Uh, that's, not, that's not what we meant. And so as a result, Europe fails to more fully integrate its defense capabilities. The United States continues to complain and we continue the cycle, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, instead, it's easier to agree on arbitrary numbers. For example, the 2% the rule, uh, which basically states that every member of the NATO alliance is supposed to try to spend 2% of its GDP on defense. And I think focusing on arbitrary numbers like this really allow us to get away from the actual issues. We don't have to think about capabilities. You know, there's this old Soviet adage that says, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. And I think arbitrary numbers like this basically uh, take, on, take on a similar, similar tone. The Europeans pretend to uh, develop their own defense capabilities and the United States pretends like we're going to let them. Um, I think over the last 20 or so years, there have been two really historical moments that I think has set the stage for how the United States approaches European defense capabilities. The first was in 1998, and Justin, you mentioned this in your opening remarks. 1998, uh, Tony Blair, Jacques Chirac uh, signed the San Malo Declaration, which basically is set to establish a European defense community. Um, and just a few months after that, the, the reaction from the United States was really swift. Madeleine Albright went to the 50th anniversary NATO summit, gave her famous 3D speech saying that in terms of European defense capabilities, there should be no delinking, no discrimination, and no duplicating NATO efforts, which in a sense, with no Euro, uh, US support and uh, no NATO support, really effectively ended the uh, Europe's quest for strategic autonomy uh, back in 1998. The second pivotal moment, I think, was in 2017 with the announcement of Permanent Structured Cooperation, or PESCO. This was uh, uh, basically 25 European members signed on to this agreement, which allowed them to cooperate with each other on things like uh, you know, cyber and a medical command and military mobility, and again, the response for the United States was swift. We, our, our uh, ambassador to NATO at the time said that we didn't want it to turn into a protectionist vehicle for European security. In layman's terms, we want to make sure that we'll always be able to sell American kit to the Europeans. Um, and there were really high level defense officials as well that uh, came out against this plan. Um, and so I think the United States has to take some responsibility for where Europe is in its quest for strategic autonomy or um, strategic sovereignty. And I think what we're seeing now is a realization of this in Washington and a shift of tone. We see high-level individuals like National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan being dispatched to Brussels with a message saying the United States is ready to support Europe's defense efforts. You just need to define them, and it's our job to support them. Um, and so I think this is good news. It means that I think 
we have a window of opportunity with this administration to really make some strides, and the hope is that we can actually make them. I think a few things need to, to happen in order for, for Europe to, I think, really make progress here. The first is that the Germans really need to get on board with this. I think historically the efforts for European uh, autonomy uh, have been championed by the French. Um, and the French ambassador isn't, isn't here to, to respond to this, so, so I'll have to you know, email him about this separately. But this can't be seen as a pet project for Emmanuel Macron. Um, I think with the new German government, the coalition agreement talks specifically about being pro-Europe and pro-European sovereignty. How that translates into defense, uh, we'll see. So I, that's something that I'm going to be watching closely. I think the second thing that needs to happen is the discussions about duplicating NATO efforts and discriminating against NATO efforts, it needs to stop. And the United States needs to be the one to, to stop that. Um, it's clear every time Europe makes uh, you know, speeches or, or high-level Europeans make speeches about sovereignty or autonomy, they always say it's going to be in, in line with NATO. Um, and my colleague at the Center for American Progress, my friend Max Bergman, you know, wrote earlier this year that if, if uh, European defense capabilities got so far down the line um, to you know, discriminate or duplicate against NATO, it's going to be because of a diplomatic breakdown. It's not going to be because of you know, miscommunications uh, in defense. And I think that the, this idea that European defense capabilities would get so far down the line as to render NATO's existing structures irrelevant or duplicated is really um, fanciful and unlikely. Um, instead, I think we can test, uh, test things that we already have in place, test structures that we already have in place, like the Berlin Plus arrangements set up in late 2002, or Article 44 of the Lisbon Treaty. Um, and finally, I think I'll end with just saying, look, not everyone is going to agree on what strategic autonomy or strategic sovereignty means. And I think that's OK, because we have structures in place that will allow for that kind of difference in thinking. But I think we do need to correct one major point, which is that um, and this concern, I think, from our Eastern European allies is that greater strategic sovereignty on behalf of Europe means a less committed United States. And I don't think that's true, but I think it depends on how you define the word committed. I don't think the United States is going to be sending um, more troops to, to, the, to Eastern Europe. Um, and, and so in that sense, maybe they're, they're right a little bit. And it's true that our strategic attention is turning to the Indo-Pacific region. It has already turned to the Indo-Pacific region. Um, but I think that what will end up happening is that Europe will end up be, to be seen as a, an equal partner. Historically, the US-European relationship has been uh, much of a senior-junior partnership. And I think more capabilities on behalf of Europe will, will result in a much more uh, equal partnership, which is, I think, what a lot of us are hoping for. So I'll leave it there and hand it over to Josh. Start of the post-war era, the U.S. went into Europe to reconstitute Europe as a third pole that could stand between the United States and the Soviet Union. For the last 60 years, certainly since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. has opposed that third pole. And my argument to you today, which you've heard from the French ambassador, which Rachel just spoke to, is that it's time for the U.S. to come back to its original premise. It's time for the U.S. to support an autonomous European security and defense identity. 
And the reason for doing so isn't for the same reasons as the post-war era. It's because of changes in the United States and in the world itself. Let me, let me outline those and build out what I'm going to say. Um, both at home and abroad, the U.S. is facing pressures which is downgrading the importance of Europe. As Rachel just alluded to, the U.S. is never going to be uncommitted to Europe. But Europe is proportionally less important to the United States. At home, we've seen growing calls for spending on domestic priorities, just simply a call for policymakers to spend more time on the United States internally, and growing domestic opposition, for a variety of reasons, to the sense that European allies have been cheap riding. I'm not going to say free riding, but cheap riding <laughs> upon United States security largesse. At the same time, strategically, U.S. attention is moving towards the Indo-Pacific. This is natural. We have a, when, when new powers arise, priorities tend to shift. And with China rising and Russia a shadow of the former Soviet Union and Europe strong, uh, probably the strongest it's ever been in the post-war era, the U.S. priorities are just changing. This adds up to a situation where Europe, on the one hand, can no longer rely as credibly upon the United States. Again, the U.S. is going to remain committed to European security but it can no longer rely as much upon the United States, even as the United States has other fish to fry. And that one-two punch, both for the United States and for the European actors, means that European autonomy has a strategic logic that it hasn't had for about the last 70 years. And so what we don't want, if those conditions are correct, is for a surprise to emerge. The worst case scenario, which all parties to this relationship need to keep in mind, is you do not want to end up in a fragile situation where Europe is reliant upon the United States, only for some other crisis in the world or at home to erupt, the US to move away from Europe and the European countries to be left holding an empty bag. It's in Europe's interest to start doing this more. We've heard the ambassador allude to this. I'm emphasizing the point. So the question becomes, how do we get there? What do we need Europe to do? Well, not, not just when I say we, what does one want Europe to do? And how do we get there? Well. I think it's fairly obvious what Europe needs to do, right? It needs to build up more of defense capabilities. It has the latent power, right? It has the tanks, it has the airplanes, it even has independent logistics capabilities. But the whole is less than the sum of the parts. And it's time for the European different member states of NATO, different member states of the EU, to start pooling their resources in a credible, coherent, systematic fashion. In that sense, I applaud the ambassador and would echo what the ambassador mentioned, that the time is right for the EU and the EU member states to define what strategic autonomy means and what capabilities are needed in cyberspace and traditional defense and logistics and mobility in foreign intervention. That is needed and the EU is, the correct, is an ideal vehicle for implementing these things because unlike NATO, the EU it has the makings, as Justin alluded to before, of an independent state, of a coherent state, which means it can monitor and enforce compliance in the direction of more autonomous capabilities. We need that. The question is not what Europe says it's going to do. It's the question of getting the European states to get there. And in that sense, the EU is a very good vehicle for this. However, it's not just the EU that has the possibility. NATO as well could be the possibility. The problem with NATO, of course, is that the United States is in NATO. Now, this is the Cato Institute. I want to be careful about how I phrase that. The problem is not that the US is in NATO. The problem is that the US is far larger than the other member states of NATO. And as we know from collective action theory and the history of NATO itself, when you have one very large actor and a series of smaller actors, it's only rational for those smaller actors to try to free ride or cheap ride a little bit upon the United States. This is structural. It's not, it's not, we don't have to blame different countries. This is natural behavior. I like a free meal also. I'll get one later. <laughs> what the US therefore needs to do is to underscoring its 
that it is moving on to other issues on the world stage and on the domestic stage. It has to begin ramping down its commitment to NATO. I think in doing so, what will be left is a rump NATO, what some would call a central European security institution, but I'll just call rump NATO for the sake of argument. And when I say rump NATO, I don't mean the, America, the United States is out of NATO. The US can still do things for NATO. It can, it can sell arms. It can provide diplomatic support. It can provide naval support. But it doesn't have to be the primary security provider of the alliance. And in doing so, if you draw down the American presence in NATO, even as the EU steps up, there are two possibilities. Either the EU can become more of a lodestone of European security, which in turn could help it enforce some of these commitment issues, or, or NATO could move, the remainder of NATO could move into the EU as the lodestone of a European security identity. And I think either one of these outcomes, either one of those outcomes would begin taking the necessary steps to create a more autonomous and independent European security force, which could help fulfill the United States' post-war mission of, cre of creating the conditions for a European third pole. Now, I'm not under any delusions. These are long-term propositions. However, I think we have an opportunity here, a window of opportunity here, which I'll echo Rachel on this point. We have a window of opportunity to see some of these things carried out because right now the issues on the strategic agenda, Russia, China, migration, climate change, these are issues that are still long-term threats to the different European member states. And the US is rebalancing elsewhere in the world, but it's not yet moving rapidly. So there's a window of opportunity to start experimenting with different solutions and different strategies to obtain a more autonomous Europe. I think it is high time for the different actors involved, the different countries involved, to begin pushing on this issue. Because again, in this window, we don't want to, for we don't want to foreclose anything that might yield more autonomous Europe in order to hedge against that possibility that one day the U.S. will simply be focused elsewhere and Europe will only then be left holding the bag. Now, I don't know what an autonomous Europe can or cannot do, right? It may be very well be the case that it would not be able to deal with all the concerns of some of the smaller Eastern European member states. It may not be able to deal credibly with the Ukraine crisis or something like a Ukraine crisis. I don't know. But the bottom line is that if the U.S. doesn't begin supporting an autonomous, e, an autonomous European security identity, then European security is going to become more and more fragile. And the problem with fragile is that one day those things tend to break. The US is being stretched, the US is focusing elsewhere, and until the European allies begin stepping up and recognizing that their incentives are in this direction, we are going to be in for a world of hurt. I think it is high time, therefore, as Rachel alluded to, for the United States to back away from its post-Cold War opposition, which was bizarre in any case, since an autonomous Europe isn't going to be a threat to the United States. And if it were to be a threat, there would be plenty of opportunities to deal with that problem should it emerge. But rather, it is high time for the United States to back away from its post-Cold -war, post War opposition to an independent EU and shift more to that 1940s style of embracing the fact that Europe is a lodestone of diplomatic power, of economic power, of military power, and to recognize that at a time when the world is changing, European interests, regardless of whether the United States is in charge of European security, align with those of the US. So whether Europe is aligned or allied or beholden to the United States, the US and the European actors are going to be in making common cause. And building upon that premise, building upon that commonality of purpose, the US should be moving away from its opposition to an independent European security force. It should be embracing calls for more autonomous European security identity. And it should be underlying that in the long term, this is what Europe itself needs. 
And so Mr. Sullivan going to the EU is, in the, is very much in the right move, and we should be encouraging these efforts going forward. And I believe we are going to be seeing more of this in the years ahead. And with that, I will step back and take any questions. So let me um, open the sort of discussion. Rachel, you've been watching the situation in Germany, which is a you know minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, evolving. Well, it's sort of firmed up a little bit, but what's your read of over the past week or 10 days? How does that auger for this entire development, both in terms of uh, German-French relations um, and something approaching unity of effort on this subject? So I think the big question is how let me go back to, to something that I said um, in my presentation was that the coalition agreement that the three parties signed off on does say that um, this, uh, this coalition is pro-Europe, pro-European sovereignty. And the question is what that is actually going to translate to in, in, in the defense field. So we know that this, um, this coalition wants to make Germany a leader on climate, um, wants to help set tech standards. But historically, the party that's in charge, the Social Democrats, has been pretty dovish on actors like uh, China and Russia. But conversely, we have the Greens that are in charge of the foreign ministry who have been historically much more hawkish on actors like China and Russia. And a lot of what's, you know, what Europe is coalescing around, um, a, lot, a lot of what Europe is realizing is that they, they need to build up their defense capabilities in order to take care of, of, their own, uh, of their own neighborhood. So if you can get this German coalition to agree to, to that, then I could see it you know, signing on board, maybe not 100% with, with the French view, but being much more open to increasing its defense spending, to being a bigger player in, in the defense field. But this is a tough role for Germany because it's historically been, you know, since the yeah, since the end of, the, of, of World War II, a very pacifist country, and I would note that this coalition it didn't outwardly say that they were going to spend two percent of their GDP on defense. Instead, what they said was that they're going to spend three percent of their GDP on a more broadly defined set of issues like diplomacy and defense. So, like you said, this is a minute by minute thing that we're watching, but I think the next six months uh, is going to be really telling in, in how, what this means for Germany. Josh, I wanted to push you on this idea that I thought was mine, but I heard everyone else bring it up, so it's not. Um, this window of opportunity, right? You really do get the sense, and I tend not to get these senses, and I kind of have one now, that there really is a window of opportunity, that you know, if we squander the moment of you know, a, particularly, um, uh, a particular sense of urgency in France that we've seen evidence today, um, a particular sense to whatever degree of veracity that you know, something resembling a pivot to Asia is happening or is the American attention is, is going away, the sort of grudging uh, uh, movement of the American foreign policy establishment that maybe kind of sort of a third force would be good. Um, do you think, you know, what is your sort of uh, prognosis of how big that window of opportunity is and, and whether the stars stay aligned long enough to, uh, to mix metaphors get out the window? Sure. No, it's, it's a really important question. How big is this window of opportunity, and can the different countries involved really take advantage of it? Well, so I, I think we should distinguish two different sorts of windows of opportunity here, right? Number one is the window of opportunity that comes from kind of seeing a changing strategic landscape with the growth of China over in Asia, the resurgence of Russia and its uh, 
recent machinations in uh, on the borderland of, of Europe, those windows are actually staying open, I think, for a bit. And so far as China isn't going away, it could stop growing tomorrow and still be quite a powerful competitor. Likewise, suspicions over Russia in Europe are now hard-baked in in a way that they weren't for the last 25 years. So those windows are really there. And the question is, how long will they continue to be there? I think they're going to be there for quite a long time. The question is really, how long is it until the US feels compelled to focus almost entirely in Asia? And there, if we're reading the Global Posture Review that recently came out correctly, it's still some ways in the future. So that window is open for a bit. Now, you asked another question, though, which is hugely important. How long will this momentum in Europe to kind of question the credibility of the United States? I don't like that credibility word, but I'll use it for the sake of argument. And how long will this opportunity of, how long will this momentum in France and other countries to find a pathway without the United States, how long will that remain open? You know, I, I, if you had asked me six months ago, I would have said it's a fairly narrow window. I think that window has grown larger over the last year. I think the, I think much too much was made of the Afghanistan pullout, although we can't be too sure uh, as to what the internal assessments were. But when you, when you layer Afghanistan, AUKUS, the crisis in Ukraine, we're getting into an environment where a whole bunch of different European actors, for their own very understandable reasons, are increasingly wondering where the United States is going. So I think that momentum in Europe is also in a direction. So I think we're facing a, a situation where, at least for the medium term, uh, several, you know, one to two years, I would say, we're going to have a window of opportunity to experiment with these different structures. And I would you know, urge all of us not to squander the opportunity, as you alluded to. And you have the French presidency of the EU. We have the French presidency of the EU. We have Mr. Biden, who is deeply committed, as you know, Rachel recognized, with Jake Sullivan going over to Europe, committed to this exercise. The stars may be aligning, and we should be pushing on this issue. Can I jump in on this for one second? You mentioned the the AUKUS debacle, and I think that's a really interesting, uh, an interesting point to make. So you know, this president came into office last January with the goal of rebuilding trust with our European partners, um, rebuilding the U.S. leadership role in NATO. And again, I'm, I I know my audience, and I know where I'm speaking, so I'm not going to go too far go too far into that. But when you look at what happened with AUKUS, I think it goes to show who the decision makers are in, in this administration, who really are the ones that are calling the shots. I have a very hard time thinking that the folks that are running Europe policy saw this AUKUS deal coming and didn't try to say, hey guys, the French are not going to be happy about this. This is going to steamroll our relationship with them and Europe more broadly. And I think the fact is that the Indo-Pacific strategist and this administration's strategic attention has clearly shifted. So how Europe steps up to the plate, I think, is the big question. Let me, 100% right. 100% agree. Let me also press this question, since it's related to the AUKUS debacle, to use your rhetoric. Um, <laughs> Of this question of a defense industrial base, right? Um, we tend to look at the US role in NATO and NATO generally, or some people in this town, as an opportunity to sell stuff mm -hmm. uh, because we demand interoperability in a variety of different ways, some of which are not always entirely operationally focused and may have more cynical motivations. Um, but to what extent, as, as somebody who worries about the politics in Europe, of you know, sort of European uh, strategic autonomy. Does the uh, let me ask it sort of two different ways. Do the politics of a bigger European defense industrial base help the European politics of European strategic autonomy? And to what extent do you think the Americans are willing to sort of let that happen? Right to let you know a a, a burgeoning actor 
uh, build its own stuff? Well, <laughs> I mean, this is this is a tough question because I think I think part of the pushback from the United States historically has been that if the Europeans really do this right, and the hope is that they do, then it will mean the US, you know, US defense base gets a smaller share of the European market. The problem, I think, with that is the Europeans want to buy American kit. Um, and so there is sort of a, a push and pull there. What that looks like 30, 40, 50 years down the line, um, we're not sure. But I think that, like you said, the window is opening. Right. And, and the, the, the fact that we're being more open about this discussion, I think, is, is movement. But again, where it goes, no one, is, no one knows. Let me, let me jump in on this. I'm in violent agreement with Rachel on this. I, I, I'll, I'll just add a couple of bells and whistles. Number one, we are seeing a burgeoning arms race in Asia. Right, and that's a huge market for the American defense industry. And I say that not because I love arms sales or because I, I'm, a, I'm a huge supporter of the defense industry. I, I don't have any funding from them. If anyone's interested in giving me funding, I'm an academic, I would love it. Uh, that's a joke. Um, partly. Partly, <laughs> partly. Uh, I'll be outside with my tin cup later. Um, but more importantly, uh, it also means that the centrality of the European market to the American defense sector is not going to be what it once was. Obviously, all firms love selling goods and services. They love profiting more. But it means the visceral reaction that we saw for many years is not going to loom as large. And in turn, to your question, of how, Justin, to, to the other part of the question, how does European defense cooperation, defense industrial cooperation, what does that suggest about, about the future for an independent Europe? Well, you know, by over fits and starts, we've seen different European countries both preserve a large degree of independent of national level defense sectors, uh, na national level defense capabilities, while at the same time finding ways of pooling resources at the supranational EU or the multi multinational level, which I think is actually a good thing from the perspective of EU or some kind of European security agency. It means there is some degree, some basis for cooperation going forward. Well, with that, let me urge the people online. You can submit questions online and urge the people here with us. You can raise your hands, which many of you are already dutifully doing. Thank you. Um, James, if you want to start in the back and maybe work your way down, and again, just sort of please identify yourself, uh, whether your question is directed at a particular member of the panel, and pose your question in the form of a question. I, yes, my name is Roger Cochetti, and um, I think the the subject, the discussion has missed one, I think, very important underlying economic uh, topic, and I'll I'll describe it in exaggerated terms to make it easy to to respond to it, and that is the the basic proposition that many Europeans, uh, from Turkey to Greece to Italy, Spain, Portugal, Denmark. Germany, France face is um, if they are to uh, have a genuinely independent um, uh, military capability, um, there's no way they could do that without spending more money on it. And um, given the, the uh, let's, for lack of a better term, call it threat from Russia, um, th that the conclusion most Europeans would reach is if you have a choice, either we uh, protect the countries um, 
east of uh, Stettin on the Baltic and Trieste on the Adriatic and do away with free health care, eight weeks of vacation and uh, free education and protect Latvia uh, or we have the quality of life we're used to, free education, free medical care, eight weeks of vacation, and the people in Latvia have to learn to speak Russian. Okay, so let them learn Russian. I have a good life and I can keep that. So how, you know, there's no free lunch here. You're, to accomplish the objective of strategic autonomy, you're looking at the roughly 5% of GDP that the United States actually spends on military intelligence, defense related, the whole ball of wax, retirement for veterans and everything. So we're up at 5%. If you impose that on Europeans, there's no way they can afford free eight weeks of vacation and there's free two, Right, so there's two, sort of, there's, there's the trade-offs within right. European states, the guns versus butter trade-offs. Um, and then I think there's the, implicit there the broader question of how much is enough, right? There's been this back and forth um, between Barry Posen and um, Steve Brooks and a co-author saying, could Europe defend itself today? And I think, you know, if you start with the balls and work back, the question, you know, the, the problem becomes harder. But the how much is enough and guns and butter trade-offs? Josh, do you want to, you were jumping on that. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I I appreciate the observation that we might be missing this, missing uh, the money involved, but, but I guess I would actually challenge that proposition. The EU as an enterprise has 25 trillion in GDP. 2% of that's a god-awful amount of money. And so it's actually not a question of financing. The, an independent EU could spend 2% and just be, be just fine. I mean, it would be, be immediately become the second largest military act in the world behind the United States at current defense spending levels. So actually, it's not a question of these buns, uh, guns versus butter trade-offs. Very hard, very hard thing to say <laughs> fast. Um, and in that sense, I actually suspect the answer is there's more than enough to, to actually hold on to the status quo in Europe. It's really a question getting, getting the different European actors to pool their resources in the most effective way possible. It's actually a transaction cost issue, not, not, a, not a budgetary issue. If you have 25 armies, 20 navies, yeah, yeah, yeah. 15 air forces, yeah, yeah, yeah. which isn't most of which are not designed to deploy power beyond their borders. Most of which are designed to operate the margins of NATO, partly because of how the U.S. designed these things. So I actually think it's about a pooling of resources issue, not the size of the pool itself. Rachel, do you want to? Yeah, no, I think I think you you make an interesting point, and especially when it comes down to threat perception. Someone who is living in the Baltics is going to have a much different view of um, current threats than, say, someone who's living in uh, Greece or, or Italy or um, Spain. And so I think, you know, historically NATO has had this sort of 360-degree approach, every ally for every ally, which I, you know, you know I guess I'm not really prepared to get into a debate on what that might look like going forward, but I'm... I'm I'm getting there. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of wondering if that's something that we need to think more, that we need to think harder about. I will say, um, I think the 2% of GDP to be spent on defense is, is something that, that we can play around with a little bit. I think that if you expand the definition of what is considered defense, 
to include, say, stability operations around the around Europe's neighborhood. Um, I think I think that should count as as um, contributing to, to to European defense, even though it might not say fall into the category of like territorial defense. You know. Um, I also think it's worth going into how the Europeans, how, how Europeans themselves view the European Union. And for this, I would refer all of you back to um, a report that I mentioned earlier from the Center for American Progress called The Meaning of uh, European Defense. And in it, it sort of goes into this idea that Europeans view themselves as, you know, say German or French, but they also view themselves as European. And as Europeans, they view the EU as an institution that should take care of their security in a way. And so I do think that there is a growing support amongst Europeans for the EU taking on um, a greater a greater security role. And again, what that looks like, I think, you know, it's a subject of, 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 of many debates, but I think it's something that we're now openly openly talking about, which I think is a good step. There was another hand right down there in the middle. Hi, I'm a, a junior undergrad from GW Allen School. Um, uh, my question will be, like, uh, after the Cold War ended, uh, like John Mearsheimer published Internet Security, a famous uh, article, Back to the Future. And, and and, and saying that, uh, predict that the United States will leave Europe and Europe will uh, descend to the uh, past, which is great power war, great power competition between the European countries. And partly uh, later on, he, uh, he explained that that didn't happen because the United States didn't leave Europe. Um, so uh, like, how do you see this that, 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 that dynamic? And um, the, the, the European defense, um, uh, uh, not only the uh, threat perception uh, pointed out, but also uh, this, this Stephen Brooks art, uh, article in Inner Security this year also uh, pointed out uh, the difference of threat perception between the European countries. There isn't a single entity of Europe. Uh, that, that, that's probably not the thing. And you see the uh, many interstate armistice dispute between, like, uh, say, um, Britain and France recently over the fishing issues. And the traditionally between Turkey and Greece. There are many interstate military disputes between European countries. And, and it is not a country in the sense of the United States. Is. There isn't an interstate military dispute between, yeah. say. Uh, I, th I think we probably, I think we get it. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to jump on whether we're. And, and also, the, the last point. Can I just respond? Oh, you have a dissertation laid out there that Josh <laughs> has to write uh, on this stage. So, are we going back to the future, Josh? Are we going back to the future? Uh, so you, you've heard in this presentation by all the, all, all the panelists today a claim that if the US is less involved in Europe, that Europe is not returning to great power competition. That is, that is the bumper sticker here, right? Now, you're right to raise the point that people like John Mearsheimer and others, who I count as friends and mentors, uh, would say this is delusional that Europe without the American pacifier is going to go back to 1914 almost the drop of a hat. Um, none of us have crystal balls. It's possible. It's very plausible in some cases. But l let's also identify the reasons that John might be wrong. Number one, nuclear weapons. Number two, sustained economic interdependence. 
Number three, historical patterns of cooperation, which can't be unlearned overnight. So is it possible that one day Europe will return to internecine uh, warfare akin to what we saw in the world wars absent the American pacifier? Yes, it is distinctly possible. We should acknowledge that possibility. If it's, do we, do, we have to, do we have to worry that it will happen tomorrow morning if the US leaves? I think on that point, we can be a little more sanguine. Rachel, did you want, okay. Let's go to uh, Eric Gomez, who's right there. Hi there, uh, Eric Gomez from the Cato Institute. Josh knows me too well. Um, I wanted to ask about China, which probably doesn't come as a surprise. Uh, France has been one of the leading countries not only arguing for European autonomy, but also trying to get more involved in Asia to, I, I think, sort of demonstrate value to the United States. Um, how does this factor into the picture about European autonomy? And how does you know, that, that difference between Europe wanting to get more involved in Asia while also trying to be more present in its own region? And how does that like dilemma create problems for policy? Well, I guess I have a really qu quick answer. And that is there's a, there's a school of thought that the United States takes care of the Indo-Pacific region, the Europeans take care of their neighborhood and Russia, and we're sort of like both in, in separate spheres. And I think that's a little bit too, too simplistic. Um, you know, if you talk to the French, they'll say that they have citizens living in the, in the Indo-Pacific region. There are Europeans there, so they have a vital interest in being a part of, uh, being part of that, that region and a part of the, the strategy of that region. Um, the EU has, you know, released its Indo-Pacific strategy. I mean, this is this is an, an active an active discussion. Um, I think the big question is, you know, the United States is obviously the, the major player there, and the worry as is that the Europeans will be so thinly stretched that they can't simultaneously, um, you know, approach the Indo-Pacific while also. Uh, you know, satisfying the needs of their their own their own neighborhood. Um, so that's not a very satisfying answer, but it, it's it's something that we're, we're all sort of debating, and it's it's not something that I have a clear answer to. Maybe Josh does, though. No, no I'll, I'll, I'll defer to your answer on this one, and I'll get back to Eric offline. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, right next to you there, James. Thank you. So my name is Jurek Villa. I'm from Germany, studying at Sciences Po and working at the Kissinger Center at the moment on global affairs. Um, my question is more toward, we've heard everyone talking of Europe um, as the partner to the US, but uh, as, as already pointed out before, I don't think there will be a return to 1914 in Europe. We are much too integrated. But there is no such thing as a coherent European identity, especially when it comes to defense and security policy. Uh, there's no unanimity w which we need. Uh, and that's why we created PESCO in 2017. And you mentioned it before. So why do you believe that there's a need for European strategic autonomy if we have different uh, threat perception, Russia for Eastern Europe, um, terrorism for um, France or the Southern Europe? What, how do you view us Europeans capable of addressing these security challenges when we have different threat perceptions, meaning we will likely veto a certain military missions or defense corporations that would address these issues at a European level? 
Well, I think this is, this is where structures that are already in place come into play, like Article 44 of the Lisbon Treaty that basically says that coalitions of the willing can undertake uh, operations. And I think that's what a lot of this is going, is going, to, come to, uh, going to come down to. Um, I, I know you had a, another part of that question, but I, uh, I'll, I'll defer to Josh. I can't remember what it was, so I'll pass it no, over to I, you. I, I'm glad you, ra you raised coalitions of the willing. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I would just say, that many of the security issues facing Europe as a geographic area, even if not all the different European states therein, on many of those issues, the, the challenges don't require an EU-wide response, right? They require multilateral cooperation, which can be done under the guise of the EU, but need not be an EU-wide response yeah. or a European-wide response. And in some cases, that's a good thing. We should be encouraging innovation. We should be encouraging exploration of different, of different ways of approaching the matter. You know, I, I, I want to piggyback here on Rachel's earlier observation that we should think, be thinking about security in a holistic sense, right? Countries that, a group of countries that deals more on traditional hard defense issues, countries, some countries can deal more on peacekeeping matters, some countries can deal more on cyber matters. These, these, this is a good natural division of labor. And in some cases, it's what a state coming together, a, a, a larger state coming together, has to do. Different parts of a given, any given country specialize in different things. You know, we don't, we don't produce oranges in Washington, D.C. for a reason. It's okay to specialize. And in that sense, we should be recognizing the opportunity, as Rachel uh, alluded to before, for operating under the panoply of the EU without expecting an EU-wide, everyone on, all hands on deck, everyone on board response. All right, I think we have time for, let's take a, right down in the front. Uh, thank you. Um, as I mentioned to the ambassador, uh, my name is Stephen Keat. I'm a retired U.S. diplomat. Um, you know, I agree that greater European defense integration would be a good thing for them and for the United States. Um, I disagree with a number of things that you have said, particularly the implication that in some way the U.S. has control over this or has, I, I think you probably saying we have influence. I think we have far less influence than you'd be implying. I think back to my um, past and my dealings with the French, for example, and they had their own ideas of what they wanted to do and they didn't tend to defer to the United States. But now, and this echoes what a number of the other questioners have said, um, what's going to make Europe change? What's going to make it become more integrated on diplomatic and defense issues. I mean, Kissinger's famous comment or famous question, who do I call when I want to speak to you know, Europe? So who will be going there? It's not enough to have coalitions of the willing. Okay, who will be going and organizing a European defense? Who will be going, as the one gentleman in the back said, and getting Europe to spend more money because they will need to spend more money if they want to be truly independent? And if we have a Trumpian-type president in the future, whether the name is Trump or not, who really doesn't care that much about Europe, to what extent will Europe have the political will to defend itself? I know I threw a lot at you, but thank I you. I wonder if those two I'll parts sort of go question. together in the sense that, um, you know, the, 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 the claim that the United States doesn't 
you know, control things or doesn't have that much influence and what will animate this need. Right. I think if you see the United States doing less, that might be the other side of the question in the right. sense that that's. Well, Justin, you, you preempted my answer. Those two things can't go together. It can't be both that the Europeans have preferences separate from the United States and there's nothing to get the Europeans to come together. Those two things fundamentally go alike. And I think as we've alluded to in, at various points in this conversation, the US has been opposed to an independent uh, European security and defense identity for a number of years. It has been that way because it ha recognizes that different European actors have different preferences from the United States. So I think get, having the US get out of the way and simply allow those European preferences to interact, play out, and the US can guide on the margins where it can is actually what's gonna be needed to get the uh, European uh, com European community small c together on this issue. Now to the question of whether that will be an easy process, whether there will be a person you can say, you can call saying the head of Europe, uh, no, it's not gonna be an easy process. It's gonna be a long time coming. But it's at the same time, we haven't really run the experiment. We're kind of blaming, we're kind of saying we can't get this outcome we haven't really tried for. Well, I don't find that satisfying. I think it's time that the US at a time when there are other priorities in the world, either recognize that it should be, it should be encouraging, change, encouraging Europe in a certain direction, changing American policy as it, from what it's been over the last 30 years at minimum, and seeing what happens from there. I, I'm, not, I'm not upset to recognize that it's gonna be a drawn out and complicated process, but I think the time is right to take steps in that direction. That's it. Okay, lady down in the front. I don't know, James, there you are. Um, Wait for the microphone, please. Does it work? My name is Magdalena Adams, and I work for a very large U.S. defense company. <laughs> so um, the challenge, which I want you to address, is that our NATO support of European Union is really very much self-serving. Our defense companies, which make a lot of money, make a lot of money of sales of weapons to Europe. So part of the challenge with us withdrawing our support of Europe is that we Americans here are going to lose a lot of income. Not only that we cannot sell to Europeans, but we are allowing truly European industry to grow. So we create competition for other European markets. I think it's something, because it's very elegantly stated, there is a window of opportunity and, and European will. I think the internal challenge will be for us Americans to say we're going to lower our standard of living because our international defense sales are going to drop. So are we facing this reality? That's a big question. Um, but I, I would go back to something that the M ambassador said, which is that the United States and Europe, I think, are, are trying to work together on this. I think the US-EU um, security dialogue, which the aim of which is to sort of like set up these staff level plannings and, and, and discussions between the US and Europe as part of that. I think the fact that NATO-EU cooperation is such a salient topic today is trying to marry up, capa trying to marry up capabilities and figure out where we can ensure that we, um, you know, plan together. Um, I think, you know, NATO has its uh, new strategic concept coming out mid next year, the EU has its strategic compass coming out early this year, and both of them are going to sort of set the stage for where these two organizations are going. Um, but co 
cooperate, cooperation between the two is on the table. And what that really translates into is cooperation between the United States and, and Europe, right? Um, and so I think these are, these are going to be important forums for, for communication and discussion. One of the big problems is that bilateral security issues, I think, hamper this, this cooperation. And we'll see if, I don't think those are ever going to be fully solved. Um, but I think the importance is going to be greater staff level defense planning between the two um, to ensure that you know the United States still has has a market there, but Europe is also independently developing its own capabilities. These are things that I, I'm sure that defense planners have thought very deeply about and are actively preparing for. I'll, I'll just jump in. I'll, I support everything Rachel just said, and but I'll add just two other points. You know, if the U.S. is in NATO and tries to prioritize NATO as the security provider of first response in Europe, largely for defense industries, then, you know, someone tell the American people, because that's kind of the largest and least efficient indirect subsidy to a business I could possibly imagine, point number one. And point number two, if we're going to, I'm all for having a frank dialogue on these points. I think we need to have a frank dialogue on these points. So let, let's acknowledge it. If the U.S. leaves Europe, defense sales might go down. If the U.S. stays in Europe, it might have to wage nuclear war one day. So let's recognize that there are trade-offs in every possible direction, and let's have a frank dialogue with the American public. On that blissfully cheerful note, yeah. uh, let's <laughs> put this baby to bed. Um, I want to thank the panelists. I want to thank all of you for coming. And we'll have lunch up, up the stairs in the George Yeager Conference Center. Restrooms are also upstairs. Thank you very much, and happy holidays. Thank you. Thank you.